This is an ABC podcast. Imagine it is 2045 and I'm here to tell you that malaria has been wiped out. Food allergies are a thing of the past and genetic diseases are curable. My future is looking bright. These ideas are not science fiction. In fact, right now, in 2019, scientists are working worldwide with a gene editing tool called CRISPR-Cas9. It has been called Darwin on steroids and the democratising of scientific technology. So, what is CRISPR-Cas9? How does it work and how might it change our world? That was Rosa Quant. She was doing a performance piece introducing the power and perhaps the pitfalls of the gene editing tool CRISPR-Cas9. She was in fact introducing the session that I moderated at the World Science Festival in Brisbane back in March. CRISPR-Cas9 has been called a breakthrough, a revolution, word editing for genes with lots of potential. The development and refinement of CRISPR-based gene editing over the past decade has accelerated the progress of genetic manipulation like nothing else. And that includes the prospect of engineering the DNA of future generations. CRISPR carries profound ethical challenges, but it also offers great promise to prevent disease, feed growing billions, and maybe even save vanishing species. In this panel at the World Science Festival, the experts I spoke to examined these issues in depth, as you're about to hear. Joining me were Virginia Sixness, a biochemist and professor at Vilnius University, who won the prestigious Kavli Prize for his groundbreaking work on the CRISPR-Cas system. Sarah Howden, a senior research officer and gene editing core facility director at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. Rachel Ankeny, Associate Dean of Research at the University of Adelaide, who's an expert in bioethics and the history and philosophy of science. And Marilyn Crossley, who works with human genetic diseases and is Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of New South Wales. It's like a pair of scissors that can cut the DNA. And it can cut our genome, or any animal's genome, in any place we want it to. And that's a very simple thing to understand. What is difficult to understand is actually what our genomes are and what genes are. So I want you to imagine, any of you who are my age have probably seen a film called Cinema Paradiso, and there's these old projectors with long, long, long reels of footage, massively long. And that's what our genomes are like. Our genome has three billion letters in it. DNA is double-stranded, and if you know about film, there's a negative and a positive. And what we can do now is use CRISPR with a guide, like a Google search, to go in and line up the bit we give it, the positive, with the negative, and we can send it to any gene in our genome, and we can cut it. And when you cut the film in Cinema Paradiso, it's a disaster. And the person who's doing the projecting grabs the two ends and ties them together. And what does that do? It leaves a hole in the film. And that's what we use CRISPR to do a lot, to delete part of a gene. What we can also do is put in a new bit of DNA. And then what might the person handling the projector do? What the person might do is say, I'm going to use that new bit to splice in 
and we can put in a new gene or a corrected gene if there's a mutation. We can put in a bit that doesn't have a mutation. And it's an extraordinary thing. It's like the discovery of Google. Suddenly we have a way to go to the exactly the right place in our vast genome. There's another problem we have, and it's in Cinema Paradiso, there's one projector for the whole of the audience. In the human body, there's 30 trillion cells, and we've got to get that scissors into every single cell in the body if we want to change an organism completely. Or we could just get it into the blood cells if we just want to change the blood, and that's what I do. Or we could go in at the one cell stage when a baby starts with one cell, change that, and the DNA is in every cell, and therefore the new baby would be changed in every cell of its body. Now, there's one other thing I have to explain now. Forget thinking about Cinema Paradiso, because what I'm going to do is tell you what a gene is. It's a stretch of that film, but it's not like a scene in a film. What it is like, and I'll use this analogy, a gene is a part of that segment that is like a jelly mold that might mold bricks for making the cell wall, might mold hemoglobin protein for carrying oxygen, might mold channel protein for taking things in and out of the cell. We have 20,000 different genes, and each one molds something different. And so what I want you to think about, when you think about changing a gene, think of a gene that might encode the bricks in the cell wall, a gene that might encode a protein that carries oxygen. But don't think of a gene as, oh, in our family, there is the gene for breast cancer. What that means is there is a mistake in a particular component that would normally prevent breast cancer cells from growing, 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 and forming a tumour. And a gene for being albino, that's a mistake in the jelly mould which makes dark pigment. So that's what a gene is, and what we can do with CRISPR now, we can go into any part in the film in Cinema Paradiso, we can cut any gene we want, we can put a new gene in, but the trick is, we have to get it into all the 30 trillion cells, or into all the blood cells, or into one cell in a baby. And that's what's causing a lot of concern. But it's not as simple as that, is it? Because when you edit in one place, <laughs> it's not like a word processing program where you remove the word and, and that word and is gone. My understanding is you remove the word and, something in chapter one could have actually been affected. So there's two reasons why this might happen. One is, if you put an extra set of traffic lights in the street outside this auditorium, it will have an impact on traffic all across Brisbane. So that's a secondary effect. So that may happen. What people are most concerned about with CRISPR is that a Google search never takes you to just one place in the internet. <laughs> and CRISPR doesn't take you to just one place. It takes you to the I'm feeling lucky, top place, but it also takes you to page two and page three of the results. And we don't quite know how often CRISPR goes to the gene we want to go to and how often it accidentally goes to other genes. 
But each year we're getting better at that. Which is why we raised the sign of the cross to changing embryos, because we've got no idea what we're doing yet. Exactly. Now, in a lot of medicine, we're not 100% sure about You're what we're doing. You're shocking me here. This is absolutely <laughs> profoundly shocking. Here, but, but when we treat a patient, we treat that patient, the patient consents. If you treat a baby with CRISPR, it's children, it's children's children for generations to come have been treated too. And that's why extra caution is required. So for goodness, gene editing is not new, and Sarah's going to talk about that in a minute. Where does this Cas9 come in? Just talk us through the mechanics of this and your research and how this, how this has been a game changer, because people just take us through that so we understand that more fully. Because yeah, so been, a lot of it's been your research. Yeah, where it came from, and many of you know that viruses infect humans, and, but probably not many of you are aware that, in fact, viruses also infect bacteria. They infect bacteria in order to replicate, and usually they kill bacteria when replication is completed. And therefore, in this respect, viruses represent a lethal threat to bacteria, but bacteria still strive and multiply, and this is because bacteria was able during evolution to build multiple defense layers that interfere with uh, virus attacks. So, I mean, this is a concept that's sort of mind-boggling to start with, is that there are viruses that attack bacteria, and bacteria have got to learn how to resist them. Yeah, exactly. And CRISPR is just one of the antiviral defense systems that actually interferes with uh, virus replication. And in my lab, for many years, we are trying to understand actually molecular mechanisms, how different antiviral defense system interferes with uh, virus attacks. Nearly 10 years ago, we have focused on the CRISPR antiviral defense systems. We focus on a particular CRISPR system that contained a gene that is called Cas9. We aim to understand how this particular CRISPR system Actually, when viruses infect bacteria, most of the bacteria die, but actually those ones that have CRISPR system, they survive just simply hijacking small pieces of viral DNA and inserting these small pieces of viral DNA in the CRISPR array, in the array containing many, many repeats, and then actually use this information to make small molecules that can help to counterfeit subsequent viral attacks. So, so it's like it, a primitive immune system. Exactly, and it's a primitive adaptive immune system because bacteria is able to memorize the invader by inserting pieces of viral DNA into its genome. Pretty clever. Yeah. And then, actually, we were able to demonstrate that the Cas9 protein actually is able to take this piece of viral DNA that was actually converted into RNA molecule and use it to find the target in the viral DNA and destroy it. So in this respect, the Cas9 protein act indeed as molecular scissors that cut DNA, viral DNA. You're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. This panel discussion about the power and potential of the CRISPR gene editing tool was recorded at the World Science Festival in Brisbane in March. Sarah, take us through your, your research, but just really how this concept is used and, and where it sits in context, because there's been an explosion in recent years. The concept of gene editing and the ability to do it has been around for a while, but CRISPR 
is a game changer because it can be, be done a lot more rapid. Because you used to have to use viruses to take things in and you didn't really know where the virus was going to go and the virus itself might have had side effects. Um, That's right. I never used viruses specifically. I actually used just big chunks of naked DNA. <laughs> but it was very inefficient. It required a very specialised set of skills, which is no longer required. But it was really when these two fields converged, which happened very recently, within the last five years, I would say, we literally just saw an absolute... CRISPR explosion. So in the number of researchers that now use this technology to not just modify cells grown in a dish, but entire organisms from plants to fish to mice, even monkeys. And just last year, I believe the FDA approved clinical trials using CRISPR to treat human disease. I think it was Thalassemia. Yeah. I expect many more in the not too distant future. So the FDA is approving for single gene disorders, where there's a single gene, like in thalassemia, which is similar to sickle cell and it involves hemoglobin, but nobody's using it in multiple gene disorders yet, like diabetes or heart disease. Not yet, no. Thalassemia is probably perhaps the most well-studied genetic disorder. We can actually take cells out, the blood cells out of the patient. We can do the gene therapy, the gene editing. We can do all the QC on those cells before we transplant them back into the patient. Quality a lot control. easier to do that ex vivo, we call that, rather than in vivo in the whole body. And in these animal models, Sarah, that's embryos that have been affected, had CRISPR on them to change the genetic structure of the embryo? Yeah, either. So in the, in the egg or embryonic stem cells as well. We can generate mice, complete mice from an embryonic stem cell that's been modified. So, but at the single, single cell level, that, that is the key so that it's passed on to all of the cells. With what side effects? It's the off-target effects people are worried about. But the side effects you see... That's what I'm asking what, about. Yeah. Well, off-target means, you know, you aim to cut 100% this gene, but 1% of the time you cut another gene. Now, since a lot of our genome doesn't code for anything or doesn't code for anything important, often in the hold experimental... Hold on, hold on, hold on. 98%. That, that's a, that we know of. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. So, just, to, just stop there for a moment, Professor Crossley. <laughs> The, uh, I mean, that, that's a myth. So we've been talking, so just to explain a little bit, we're talking about what's called the exome, which is the, the part of the genome that codes for genes. There's another part of the genome which doesn't code for genes, but is hugely important in genetic regulation. So if you get a CRISPR cut inadvertently, as well as in the gene, but in the regulatory sequence, you could really screw up somebody's genome. So it's true. So there, 2% uh, of our genome codes for the things I was talking about, the BRICS, the haemoglobin protein. 1% of the genome codes for the on-off switches, vitally important. And the volume switches. Yes, vitally important. Another 5% of the genome, things, structural things, other volume switches, but 90% junk. <laughs> junk. As far as we know. Yeah, I mean, true. what we call junk because it's a way of yeah. saying we're not really sure not what sure. it does. Of that 90%, you know, there's a decent proportion that just seems to be duplications, right? As far as you know. But some of that 90% may emerge to be meaningful because, you know, lots of diseases are, are multi-gene. They're not one location. There's multiple locations working together to produce something that isn't what we want, namely a disease, right? 
Um, so we don't know definitively that it doesn't do anything. What we know is we don't know. We, of the 90%, I'll grant you another 1% might have a function, but I'd stick oh, with 89%. Wow. 89%. Can we, I will check back with you in 20 years. In the years to come? Yeah. Yeah, you 20 can. years, we'll check back with you. You okay if we remove 95% of your <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we can find out. It's mostly um, dead, dead retroviruses and things like Maybe, that, yeah. that in your computer drive at home, what percentage of the Word documents you have are junk? What percentage <laughs> of the emails are junk? In my Most case, all of them. <laughs> In my case, it's 90%. <laughs> so when you look at, I'll come to Virginius's latest research in a minute, but when you look at sickle cell anemia, you better explain what sickle cell anemia is in a long way, thalassemia. Are you talking about modifying the embryo? Yeah, so it's great to talk about this one because I liken this one to a pothole out of the front of this auditorium. If there's a pothole out of the front of the auditorium and you call the council and they fix that pothole, you know, provided they get the address right, you have actually fixed it. And what you're doing is you're taking someone who has an inherited mutation and you're comparing them to the people who don't have that disorder and saying, I want to be like them and you can fix it. And I call it organic gene therapy because you're not introducing anything artificial. You're just taking what is exact, naturally occurring and putting it back. What is sickle cell? Sickle cell anemia is a defect in the protein, which is a carrier protein that carries oxygen around your body within red blood cells. And there was a mutation occurred thousands of years ago in Africa and... Because it protected against malaria. That's right. Yeah. That person had one... So we all have two genes. That person had one mutant copy, one normal, and their blood was slightly unusual and the malaria parasite didn't like it. So that person had more kids than other people. And most of those kids would get one copy and those kids bred with other kids who had the same descent, and most of the time they just get one copy. But if one quarter of the kids would get the mutant copy from their mother, the mutant copy from their father, and they would have blood that had two mutant copies, couldn't carry oxygen well, and the protein stuck together. And that meant that the blood cells got misshapen and they stuck in capillaries in the blood vessels. And this causes awful pain. Apparently, it's like having a hand slammed in a car door mm -hmm. for hours. And these pain crises, serious thing. And this is, it's enormous number of people carry these mutations, mostly Africa. But we have thalassemia as a different defect, also gives resistance to malaria. And that's found anywhere there where there was malaria, throughout the Mediterranean, Middle East, southern China, and sickle cells, the most common mutation in Africa. Now, if I said to any of you, which tissue of your body, which, what would you give me 100 grams of? You'd only say blood. <laughs> You'd say blood. And we can take the blood and we can take the stem cells, which are the immature blood cells. We can correct the mutation and then we can inject those stem cells back and then you're not changed, but your blood is changed. Or we can take blood from a person who doesn't have the disease, take their stem cells, put that back into you. So essentially it's a bone marrow transplant yeah, bone of marrow genetically transplant. engineered cells. Exactly. So, but and if you this, were going to fix up cystic fibrosis, mm. that would have to be the embryo. 
Yeah, because that affects lung, pancreas, gut, and cystic fibrosis, it's baked in. The defect's baked in to every tissue in your body, whereas your blood, take it out, fix it. And well, so I people think patients, CF patients would argue, if you, if you just fix my lungs, I'd be yeah. okay with that. <laughs> yeah. So, for goodness, what's your yeah. lab working on now, taking it to the next stages of development? Actually, all these genome editing tools like Cas9, they come in very different flavors. And there are many now different Cas9 genome editing tools around. And actually, my lab is focused on trying to find new Cas9 analogs or orthologs, how we call it. And actually, we expect that these new genome editing tools could be a bit more precise and give less off targets so that maybe could be more useful for genome editing applications. So. So essentially, you're going into Word version 6.9 in terms of getting better and better programming. Yeah, yeah. But, but still we are looking into the bacteria that actually produce different Cas9 proteins. And are you looking at any applications of that, or you're purely into getting the tool as good as it can be? Yeah, so actually we are focused mainly on a tool side. And when you look at what people are doing with the tools that you've developed in the past, what do you see that pleases you and what do you see that worries you? You can do different things with every tool, so and with Cas9 also, you, you can do good things like uh, correct mutations and so on, but actually you can also use for, for different things, so it's no difference with other tools, yeah. Do you wake up at three in the morning worried? No, I wake up because of, of the jet lag, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we feel fully responsible for. <laughs> so Rachel, is there a role for the bioethicist here, apart from just getting in the way? Um, no. <laughs> That's not what we try to do. Um, I mean, what a bioethicist would usually sort of do in this domain is work with um, people at that transition from the laboratory setting into the clinical setting to think about when and why and how is this going to be ready to go into people, right? Because, of course, one of the ultimate goals here beyond understanding kidney function is going to be actually to create a transplantable organ or organoid or substitute. And there's a real demand, particularly in kidneys. We know people go on dialysis. I've worked a long time with a lot of transplant communities. People are willing to take certain risks, but ethicists, for example, would get involved in which patients, let's say, are selected to be the original ones to take the leap to try use of these sorts of organoids. I mean, the main job of an ethicist, certainly in a clinical setting, is to make sure that um, patients or volunteers understand what they're getting into. They understand that it's not fully understood and that it is an experimental setting and what the possible benefits are, particularly where they may well be incredibly desperate because they're very sick people in different ways. And this seems like an option, you know, to eliminate long-term dialysis or indeed to, to be able to live for some people. And so eventually the hope is Sarah's group and others that will get to that sort of stage. Um, and so too, any of the stories we've heard about the various diseases, there's always going to be that time when you have to just take the leap from the lab dish or the bench you know, into actually using it uh, in a live human being. Mm -hmm. So given the potential for backyard stuff, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm grossly exaggerating here, should people like Virginius and Marilyn and Sarah be allowed to publish freely, given that ISIS will read the journal <laughs> in northern Iraq? 
That's an interesting question. So I think there's always been an erring on the side of thinking that taking things into the public is better than not. Mm -hmm. I do think there have been some lines drawn and they were probably appropriate around things like freely publishing every detail of the smallpox sequence, where there's likelihood of retooling things as biological weapons, where a line has been drawn and information is shared perhaps within the relevant biological community, but it's not out there in the open access journal for everyone to take down off the net. You know, we have tended in science, and this might be the wrong approach, to err on the side of thinking making things openly accessible will have more benefits than harms. But I do think the harms and risks are always out there of the technique themselves. There's no denying it. You're never going to eliminate all risk. So Sarah, take us forward. Take, well, take us whatever length of time you want, five or 10 <laughs> years down the track. In your area, what's it going to do? A new area that I'm a bit more excited about is perhaps the generation of designer cells or new cells or synthetic cells that you wouldn't normally see in, in nature. And by that, I mean, what if we could engineer a stem cell to make a nephron, for example, that filters blood 10 or 100 times more efficiently than a nephron in us? So you could have your own mobile dialysis unit under your skin? Yeah. Yeah, that means we need less nephrons, um, which addresses one of our issues at the moment, which is we can only make a small fraction of what is required. Or what about, and this is something that's already been explored by researchers in the field, is making a universal cell type, so an off-the-shelf stem cell that we can make organs from that when we transplant them into patients, they won't elicit an immune response, so they're mm -hmm. immunocompatible. I think these are real opportunities already. But even more so because gene editing, this technology can be used to modify pretty much any living cell. I think I'm more excited to see it to combat probably more pressing issues than, than we face with human health, which is climate change and creating a more sustainable environment. So for example, can we make trees that suck up carbon 100 times more efficiently than, than they currently do? Can we make better biofuels? And there's already a research effort into to looking at these things, and I'm more excited and hopeful that it can be used in the, those sorts of areas. It's a very powerful tool and, and very versatile, so we can use nearly in every cell in different model systems. But actually, in fact, the Cas9 gives you a precision with gene therapy, so you always have a problem that when the new mm. gene is delivered by, by virus, it could hit in a wrong place, and that sure. happened several that times. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here, actually, we have more control, and, mm. and we can do it more precisely. So I think it's, it's, Much it's really very promising. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I should say, of course, yeah. there were successes in gene therapy too, yeah. but it was in very limited and, and, systems and, 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 in blood so, disorders, right? And yeah. very recently, some of them then just went to, to the last stage of clinical trials now. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you'll see gene therapy for blood disorders and immune systems. Yes. I mean, it, well, it yeah. will accelerate. Rapidly. Will, that will that translate, given that immune therapy is now coming into cancer, will that translate into cancer therapies? Yeah. I expect it will. So I think there will be modification of the immune system so the immune system can... So we're already taking white cancer. cells out, modifying yep. them and putting them back in. Yep. Presumably there might yep. be a role for CRISPR yep. in that. It won't cure all cancer because every cancer is different but it will give another line of treatment for cancers. Mm -hmm. And what about microorganisms? I mean, you know, it's very fetish to talk about the microbiome. Your original research is into bacteria and, and manipulating bacteria. Is there some sort of role here for CRISPR? In yeah, and, and there are some really interesting and promising applications of CRISPR technology also in bacteria. For example, people are 
talking about new antimicrobials, so that use CRISPR tools and then Cas9 actually to... to uh, so the actual treatment contains Cas9? Some bacteria become antibiotic resistant, and this is a huge problem, actually we are running out of antibiotics. But now people are thinking about using CRISPR tool to deliver CRISPR tool in this bacteria and to actually destroy the antibiotic resistant genes in bacteria, and then actually making bacteria again susceptible to antibiotic treatment. So that could be a really promising application. Well, I think I'm slightly more settled. Um, <laughs> are you more settled? We'll see. Can you please join me in thanking our fantastic panel? And that was the beginning of Sickness, Sarah Howden, Marilyn Crossley and Rachel Ankeny talking CRISPR at the World Science Festival in Brisbane. I'm Norman Swan and hope you can join me next week. <laughs>